Uh, in Daniel chapter 5, there's this really cool story, which is kind of a weird thing to say, because it's not really a cool story, it's kind of a tragic story. But there's a story that is called, uh, is about Belshazzar and his feast. He is the king of Babylon, he is young, he is proud, he is vigorous, he is full of life. He has the world in his hands. He can do anything he wants with it. And if you can imagine a man like that, you might imagine, without me going into descriptions for little ears, what that party might have looked like. You with me? And at one point he says, you know, I got an idea that will really take this up a notch. He says, DJ, turn down the song. I got an idea. He says, bring in all of the cups that we took from that temple in Jerusalem. Bring in their gold and their silver and all the, all the different vessels that they used to use for their holy, you know, their holy days and sacraments and all these kinds of things. Bring them in and let's drink from them. Because obviously what you can see from this is, is not just, a, not just a, it's a nice cup, but it's a way of bragging without even needing, needing to brag. Of our power, our dominion. We've got life right here. So they bring them in, and they fill their cups with wine, and they, you know, cheers and clash and cry out and praise the gods, the gods that gave them victory, the gods that gave them might, the gods of wood and idol and stone, the gods of the moon and the stars, Marduk, their great god. They praise the gods who have given them everything, everything is theirs, and then suddenly into this this den of wickedness, this party, a hand appears and breaks into the plaster on the wall, writing four words, Mena, Mena, Tenkel, Parson. And Rembrandt captured this, and this is your cultural moment for the day. You're welcome. It's a little bit medieval, but I feel like this kind of captures, if I saw that, that's my look. What is going on here? I mean, it's a terrifying moment. You were praising, and then all of a sudden, some ghost hand starts writing on the wall, and he calls his sorcerers and his magicians and his priests and his wise men, the people who have PhDs in four or five different fields. He calls them together, and he says, tell me what this means, because I really want to know. That's a note to you. If you ever have a hand show up, start writing on your wall, call someone up. You should figure this out. It matters. No one could give him an answer. No one can answer it. And so his mother, the queen mother there, who's probably standing in the back tis- tisking, her foolish son, steps in and says, when your dad had a problem, he called Daniel, one of the exiles from, from the temple that you are blaspheming right now. And so he calls Daniel in. If you can imagine Belshazzar, young man with his party sitting on his dais, sitting on his throne. He calls Daniel in. Daniel comes in, and you can imagine he's a little bit older at this point, gray-headed. Comes in, probably looking very plain at this point, having lost a lot of his power and authority. And he says to Daniel, Daniel, I will give you a purple robe, a robe of royalty. I'll give you a gold chain. I will make you the, the viceroy, a ruler over a third of my kingdom, if you can answer and tell me what this is. And Daniel says this, keep your gifts. If somebody offered you, a, you get to be governor of a third of the United States, what do you say? Thank you. <laughs> heck yeah, who is the heck yeah? 
That was you. You always got a smart aleck comment. I should have known. Miles is it. This is, this is the whole call and response right here. I call and he responds. Yeah, I mean, what, who turns that down? Who turns that down? Who turns down a gold chain? Somebody just hands you a gold necklace. I'm like, all right, you know. Daniel, I don't, I don't want your gifts. Your things mean nothing to me. Can we say that? And, uh, and he says, nevertheless, I'll, I'll, I'll explain it to you. I'll tell you what it says. It says, and here I'm paraphrasing. You can read Daniel 5 if you want to get the exact words. But it says, you have been weighed on the scales and you have been found wanting. And so tonight you will lose your kingdom and your life. And the irony of the story, and the irony of so many of our Bible stories is this. God delivers a message to people. And that message is built around one single word that we hate hearing and hate doing. Repent. And the king hears this message. He sees a disembodied hand write the message in the plaster of his wall. And he doesn't believe it. Sometimes people will say, well, if God would just show up. No, because if the sin and the love of sin is so deep in your life, if God shows up, it doesn't matter. And the message that we have from the scriptures today is something that is very seriously similar to this story from the Old Testament. If you want to turn in your Bibles, it's in uh, Hebrews chapter 10. We've been making our way through Hebrew, Hebrews. Uh, we're... We're very close to the end, only about six more weeks. <laughs> that's close. <laughs> that's, that's close for ODCC, right? <laughs> uh, we're on page 1007, if you want to just be where I am at. You know, last week, it's imperative to recognize what we were talking about last week, because last week feeds into this week, which will feed into next week, which is, a glorious, wonderful sermon of encouragement, but as is true of everything, we don't get encouragement until we get repentance. Right? We have to have a knowledge of sin before we can have the relief of redemption. You with me? Last week, the scriptures told us that what we need to do is we need to provoke one another. This is from chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. We need to provoke one another. We need to stir one another up. We need to prod and stab at one another toward love and good works. That we need to make sure that we are continuing to meet together and not giving up on that. And that we are to encourage each other and all the more, even more often, every single day, however you want to put it, and even more as we see the day drawing near. You can see that there in your scriptures in verse 25, at the end of verse 25. The day there is referencing the day of judgment. The day when we stand before God. And even if you're here today and you say, well, I'm, you know, I'm not so sure about this Jesus coming back kind of thing, let me say that every single one of us recognizes that our day is coming to an end and is coming to an end sooner rather than later. Today you are closer to death than you were yesterday, right? And there, there comes a moment where everything is cut off and all the other, every opportunity you've had in life is now done. There's nothing more that can be done. And the Bible, in, in, in Hebrews here in Revelation, Hebrews here in Revelation, in Hebrews chapter 4, the Bible calls this rest. It calls it rest. 
that there is a rest for the people of God. In fact, I give it to you right here. Hebrews chapter 4 says this. There remains then a Sabbath rest. And if, you, if you're new to church and you're on the Sabbath, I'm not really sure what that is. Just kind of don't worry about that right now. Think about the Saturday where you just kick up your heels and you just do whatever you want. It's rest. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works. All the things that they were busy about doing. Just as God did from his when he made the world. Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter into that rest, again, because that rest is eternal. You ever been, how many of you are, like, looking forward to Monday? Ah, A couple of you. This is a trick question, because everyone's like, oh, the weekend's almost over. Like, we recognize that rest is temporary. We recognize that you you get two days. How many of you are pumped when you get a three-day weekend? Ooh, four-day weekend, even better. Summer vacation. Spring vacation, or winter vacation, that's what's coming up. Whatever they call it, Christmas vacation. Not the movie, the actual vacation. (laughs) Those rests are temporary, they're short. The rest that this is talking about is eternal. So if we're excited about a four-day weekend, how much more excited should you be about an eternity of it? I didn't mean quite that literal, but again, call and response. That's all right. We should be pumped about that. And because of that, we should make every effort to enter into that rest. But, but take for just a second that word rest. What does that imply then before the rest? Work. I didn't hear so much effort over there when I said that. It implies work. It implies that there was some effort that was, that was expended for a reason, and that reason is the furthering of the gospel, so that the world might know and other people might enter that rest with you. How can we talk about entering a rest when we never started working? When we... Uh, when we face God, what is he going to talk? When he, if he pulled out a big, let's say just a big Excel sheet of your life, and days were given and hours were given, and he said, okay, where is the work you did for me? What's it going to add up? What's it going to look like? I mean, I can't judge that. I don't know you. I don't know what you do. I mean, you, you tell me, what's that look like? Is there really a rest for you? Have you, have you worked for a rest? If God looks at you and he says, man, That servant needs a rest. Would he say that about you? Would he say that about me? Paul puts it this way when he's speaking. He says, for I am poured out like a drink offering. The time for my departure is near. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. And now, because of that work, there is what? Rest. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness with the Lord, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but to you who have also loved his appearing. Now, I, I, I'm not suggesting that every single one of us should experience Paul's tumultuous life of shipwrecks and persecutions and jails and, and hunger and beatings and all of these things. But let's just take the word work and rest for a second because... We have a lot of need for it around here. A lot of need for it. So this moves us into our text for today. 
it moves us into the verses here, uh, beginning with verse 26. And what 26 is going to give us is what we are, we are going to receive is a, is a dichotomy set up between two groups. You have a, a false Christian. I'll just use that as a, as a way of kind of categorizing it. You can, if you come up with a better one, it's fine. It's just my category. False Christian and true Christian. These kind of, even though they, they function like this throughout the, you, if you set them up next to each other, this is what we will see. So looking at verses 26 through 31, go ahead and look at your scriptures and follow along as I, I read this. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Now, if you're new to church, you, that might sound like a lot of gobbledygook, so let me explain it really quick. The Jews had at least one day a year, like even if you weren't a very good Jew and you never sacrificed any, at any other time, one day a year, the Day of Atonement, the priest made a sacrifice and all of the sins of the people were sent out. You with me? Make sense? Sins are gone. Good news. The next day you sin, and the next day you sin, and the next day you kind of are just, you're just sinning. But you are sinning because you know that, hey, 2019, we will have another day of atonement. And that day of atonement comes, and your sins are washed away again. You can sin again and again and again. Because you know in 2020, there's going to be another day of atonement, right? So you can sin and sin and sin. And there's another, every time that you run into sin, hey, that's okay, there's another sacrifice. I can make another, I can do something else to set it up so that I'm forgiven again. And what's the text say? The text says, there's no more sacrifices. Jesus did it. One time, once for all, you as a person who is a Christian, who has put your faith in him, have put yourself under his blanket. He has covered you over. You've clothed yourself with Christ. Now you are done with sin. There's no more sacrifices down the line. So if you start sinning, what's, hope, what's the hope down there? there? There's nothing more. It says here, for if we keep on sinning, after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there's no longer a sacrifice for sin. There's not another day of atonement. But what is there, verse 27? A fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries of God. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now let me explain that real quick. So here's your Old Testament law, your law of Moses, what God had had used to tell the people how to live his way. If you ignored the law of Moses as one of God's people and someone stands up and says, Ray did it, and somebody else stands up and says, yeah, I saw him do it, Ray dies. Because God's people are going to be holy. If you dwell in God's presence, you must be holy. You cannot be in God's presence if you are not holy. Now, that was in the Old Testament. What today? Verse 29. How much worse the punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled? Here's your three witnesses. Hear it. Trampled underfoot the Son of God. Profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was, by which he was uh, sanctified. And three, has outraged the spirit of grace. Three witnesses standing against you. And so you might be able to say to those witnesses, well, back there, remember when I was 10 and I got baptized at uh, Michiana? Remember that time I went down front at CIY? Remember that time when, 
you know, this wife of mine wanted me to get into church, and so I was baptized. You remember back then? Well, back then was back then. Right now, you're doing what? Trampling the Son of God, ignoring the covenant that has sanctified you in his blood, and outraged the Spirit of grace. What is left for you? And here he invokes the Old Testament, for we know him, that is God, who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay And again, the Lord will judge his people because verse 31, here's the conclusion, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Now you might say to me, Jordan, that doesn't sound very Jesus-y. And I would say you spent too much time on Facebook looking at memes and not enough time reading the Gospels. Peter who spent his time with Jesus. Peter, right? Peter was kind of, they didn't use the term BFF back then, but something like that. And Peter, when he writes to the church, he writes a warning. He warns the church. Why? Because he hates the church? No, because he loves the church. If you know that judgment is coming and you, and you love someone, you, you warn them, and that's what Peter does. Peter says this, for it is time for the judgment to begin with God's household. Where does it begin? It begins with the church. And if it begins with the church, he says, what shall the end be for those who do not obey the gospel? And here then is that moment of repentance, my call to you from the scriptures. If you are a Christian who has wandered from the truth, this is the voice of Daniel to you. Do not be found weighed and wanting. Come to Jesus. Repent. And if you are not a Christian here today, here is my message similarly to you. Come to Jesus and repent. Turn away from your evil deeds. Turn away from the things of darkness. Turn away from the the ways of the past and focus on him. In fact, what's notable here is that this all began with the, if we continue sinning, what is the sin he's talking about? You thought about that? I mean, you see the word sin and we kind of impute into our minds whatever we want to accuse other people of. How many of you do that? Huh? Get a witness. Come on. You see the word sin and you're like, I know that person. I know who that is. I know what they do. I know what they've done to me. But the sin directly follows an a, uh, exhortation, an instruction The sin that he's talking about here directly follows what? Verses 24 and 25. Let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds. Let us make sure that we do not neglect meeting together. Let us continue to encourage one another to not do these things is the sin he's talking about. If we aren't provoking one another, we're sinning. If we're not meeting together, we're sinning. If we're not encouraging one another, we're sinning. And we're falling under this condemnation. And so there's a word here, a word of warning that calls us to take very, very seriously the words of God and our life before him. But I'm not going to leave you there because there is another kind of Christian, right? True Christian. Like this, this is a warning that is meant to make your blood go cold, and I hope it does. But that's not what he wants to say of us or of the audience that he's writing to. Rather, he wants to move on and make sure that in view of the warning, we can move forward to the goodness. You want to move forward to the goodness? 
I do. I want to leave repentance behind, and I want to move forward toward the glory and grace. That's the path that comes through repentance. There's no other way other than to acknowledge the sin and bend the knee to Christ, and then to live in light of his goodness. And that's what we get. Verse 32, look at that, please. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you, were in, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. This is in prison for their faith. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew... Let me just stop there for a second. Does that sound bizarre to anybody else? I had a woman in Tennessee tell me one time, if anyone plundered my property, I'd pull out my gun and shoot him. I was like, well, I don't know that that's what Hebrews is talking about here. Would you joyfully accept that? There are Christians in the world who are. Because we wrestle with this text. Uh, We don't experience this kind of thing. Some do. Uh, This is a story from India. Uh, This is just one of India's many states. We have a mission that we support in India. You can talk to somebody from the missions team if you want to get those those deep details. But this is what's happening in India. They are being publicly, uh, it is like law on the books that you are not to, you are to ostracize. It's like being in high school only worse. You remember that? ostracize the Christians. They are cut off socially from everyone around them. And if they found out you're talking about Jesus to other people, guess what happens? More than that, prison sometimes, stonings. In China, they have recently begun a serious crackdown. China, is, as you know, is a communist nation, which is inherently atheistic, and it is cracking down on churches, it is burning churches, it is pillaging churches, and it is re-educating Right? We get what that means. Re-educating Christians. They are experiencing the kind of prison, the plundering of their property that this text is talking about. And here's a story, um, here's a story out of Sudan where 12 Christians were in a marketplace building rapport with, uh, with Muslims. And when they found out that this is what was happening, they were arrested, they were beaten, they were tortured and put under great and tremendous suffering. I tell you these stories not because I um, want you to feel guilty. That is the exact opposite of my intention. I tell you these stories because these are heroes. These are men and women who suffer and die for their faith. Who experience the plundering of their properties. Who experiencing the beating of their bodies. Who experience ostracization. Ostracization. Not You get what I mean. Being cut off from society, they experience all of those things that we're reading about here. And they should point for us the way. Because they, like Daniel, say, keep your robe, keep your necklace, keep your kingdom. I want Jesus. And when we see stories like that, we should say, I can live up to that. Because here in the West, it's easy. Even those of you who have it hard, It's easy in light of that, isn't it? And if you think of the bravery of walking into a Muslim marketplace so that you can build a relationship with somebody, so that you can share Jesus, what is holding you back from walking next door? 
What's holding you back from talking to somebody that works next to you? What's holding you back from inviting someone that you, you meet randomly in Walmart to your church? What's holding us back in light of these great heroes of faith? These people who have set aside the sins of the past, who have provoked one another to love and good deeds. What is holding us back? Because why? The text says, look there, in verse 34 and 35, for you had compassion on those in prison, etc., etc., since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, because in it is reward. I know we don't talk a whole lot about rewards, and that's because we don't want to get... Uh, sucked into the whole health and wealth thing, like if you give the church 200, God will give you three or whatever. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about a people who cannot be bought. Daniel could not be bought. Those Christians could not be bought. And you, if you are here today, I want to encourage and call and convict you, be a person who can't be bought. Be a person who's all in, For the gospel, here's your football metaphor for the day. Leave it on the field. I ran track, which was four miserable laps around that horrible, awful piece of blacktop. How many, anybody run track? Yeah, a couple people. Most of you were smart, good. In in track, you're running because you want to win. I never did, but theoretically... You were running so that you could win. And you counted the laps of the track. I'm like, man, I'm on lap three. Because once you hit lap three and you move into lap four, guess what you're supposed to do? You guys are so smart. Even those of you who don't, like, it's logical. You speed up. How many of you have slowed down? What, what time do you have left? I mean, the the closer you get to that day, the harder you should be running that race because the closer you get to that day, you recognize how little the things in life actually matter. What's another bauble that you bought at a store? What's another thing, another memory that you make on another thing that you do? Like, I mean, whatever it is, what's another TV show? What's another story? What's another trip? What does all of that matter in light of eternity, which is speeding at you? Shouldn't you be running with all of your heart to get the reward? That's what the text says. John 1, 8. And it, and it always holds intention, these two things. You see it there. John 8, watch yourselves. If you're running track as a metaphor, you're looking out that you don't run into other people. You're looking out that you don't run off the track and sprain your ankle. You're focused on the line. You're keeping in your lane. You're doing all of these things. You're watching yourself. Why? So that you don't fall off, so you don't lose your reward, so that we get the fullness of what God has for you and what God has for you is greater than anything you can buy. Jesus says this, this final closing, beautiful story of Revelation 22. Behold, I am coming soon and I am bringing my reward with me to repay each one of you for what he or she has done because I am the beginning and the end. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. And because of that, his reward is great. And so the question begins with that Uh, Are we sinning? Are we walking in sin? Are we not meeting and encouraging one another? Are we not provoking one another? Are we not doing love and good deeds? 
analyze yourself, watch yourself, ask yourself that question. Ask that question of others. Say, if you could, if you could analyze my life, find your best friend, find your spouse, find your kids if you really want to hear the truth. I'm not joking. How much time do you spend reading the Bible to your kids? We don't do it enough. Taking those moments of deep, painful introspection. Because all of the pain that you bring yourself today means all of the victory you get in glory. It's better that we, we mortify our own flesh than Christ does it when he returns, right? I mean, that makes sense. You put in the work now so that you can have the victory at the end. So the reward uh, is met there. And with that in mind then, we move to this place where we see that all of the things of the world are nonsense, they're a waste. They might be charming now, but the end therein is death. And so we fix our eyes on Jesus. We don't go on sinning, but rather we recall what we have given for Christ. Every time that you put in a work to help God to work for the church. You say, there's a moment where I can see and you look back over your life and you're able to see what you have done for God just like he talks about in this text so that as we run the race, we can see the goal at the end because the conclusion is beautiful and good and encouraging just as much as it is convicting. He says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, verse 36, for you have need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And there is something promised for you. For yet a little while, here he quotes the Old Testament. For yet a little while, the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one, that's you, that's me, right? Will live by faith. And if we shrink back, God's soul has no pleasure in us. We. we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We are those who have faith and preserve our souls. This morning, as we close this down and move out into the world, I close it down is a bad word. As we go forth in victory, this morning, as we go forth in victory, I want to call to you, wherever you are on the path of faith, if you haven't really started it yet, it's time to start. There's no more time to waste. The day is approaching. Now is the day of decision. Now is the day of salvation. We will have an elder over here and over here, and they would love to pray with you and to talk with you and to encourage you and help you think about how to begin this way of faith, whether it's baptism or whether it's, it's stepping in in a new way. If you are a Christian here today, wherever you are, I want you to stop and ask yourself those questions. Where are you on this race? Where are you on this race? And how can you lean in to the church so that somebody can poke you in the side and say, love more, do more, serve more, so that through this race, you might end up with a great reward because that is God's will for you. 
God's will is not one of condemnation, destruction, and hell, and death, and all of those things. God's will for you is victory. God's will for you is life. God's will for you is faith. God's will for you is not to be alone, but to be brought into a community of people. God's will is that you run the race with perseverance so that you obtain the reward. How will you do that this week? How will you encourage one another you got pews, right? You're sitting by somebody. Poke them in the side and ask that question. Let's stand as we sing.